Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Good morning and welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. It's another solo episode coming at you. Coming at you this time. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like a piggyback on what Kyle and I talked about on Sunday, so the last episode. And I was trying to think about the best time to do this one, and it seems like probably today. Um, I've got a couple lined up. I finished reading God's Debris that Daniel Torden recommended, um, and it's, it's awesome. It's a really small book. And it turned out to give me basically two full episodes worth of ideas out of. So I figured I would save those for Kyle and I to talk about. And this one I would do all by my lonesome. So what what are we doing today? On Sunday when we got together, Kyle and I, we, we basically just talked through a bunch of hippy-dippy stuff that I wrote down during a mystic experience. And it was like a curated list of quotes so that we could talk through kind of the kind of the main gist of the mystic experience and the stuff that I thought was interesting, leaving out the stuff that I thought was embarrassing or confusing. So that's what we did. And the idea was, how do we communicate to people who, who have never had a mystic experience or have never done, uh, let's say, psychedelic drugs? Um, or don't have any sort of deep practice in meditation or yoga or anything that would get you to those sorts of altered states of consciousness. How do you explain to somebody like that what the mystic experience is like? Because I was one of those people that wanted to know before I had the privilege of having that experience. I was very curious about it. And it's, it's curious for all sorts of reasons, you know, not least of which the way that um, psychedelic experience, for instance, as an example, is presented to us in, in Hollywood. Or, you know, talking to your parents or, or grandparents or aunts and uncles or whoever lived through the 60s and 70s in your life, hearing their stories. Um, you know, they say all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you've never had an experience like that and you don't have any way of even conceptualizing something like that's possible, hearing somebody talk about it is very interesting. You know, if anything, it makes you curious what it must be like. And how do you tell somebody? How do you share that experience with somebody who's never been there? It's basically impossible. And I thought that the closest thing I was going to be able to do was talk about my own experience, right? Because it's one thing if we talk about, you know, like images from movies or, um, you know, stories from, um, uh, Fear and loathing in Las Vegas or something like we're not we're not going to get there 
it's going to be a bunch of images, you know. You've all seen the pink elephants from the Looney Tunes, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons. You've seen the, uh, you know, the bad trip depicted in... Um, Depicted in Hollywood, like like I tried to do uh, on the episode last week, describing you know the walls dripping and uh, demons crawling under the door and you know colors and overwhelming you know visuals and all that. And that's it's basically it's basically bull, bullshit. You know, I mean, like it is and it isn't. Um, you know, I don't want to get into particular details unnecessarily, but people who do something like LSD, especially in high doses, they may say some stuff like that. Um, but I think that it's those stories are f- further from the truth than they seem to be. And if you have an experience like this yourself, you, then you realize, okay, I see what they were doing. You know, they were they were trying to get the gist of the emotions. They were trying to capture, you know, the gist of the disorientation. You know, and they're painting it up in these stories and pictures that really don't tell you what it's like. And it's way more than what you see and what you hear and what you, you know, mostly it's, it's the stuff people talk about is what you see. It's more than that. It's so much more than that. It's about, it's about the emotions involved, what you feel, you know, uh, it all, and it all plays together. And it's really difficult to try to express that to somebody who's never been there. We talk, talk about something like completely otherworldly like the DMT experience as an example it's really really impossible I mean there's lots of good re- resources out there you guys can go and read um, uh, now I'm going to draw a blank uh, The Spirit Molecule you can go read that you can go watch the documentary The Spirit Molecule um, you can uh, check out Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia there's I think two different episodes on DMT at least one you can go and you can watch people you can watch somebody in the throes of a DMT trip, and you can see them from the outside. And then you can watch them on Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia describe to you, try to describe to you, what it is they saw or, or felt or experienced while they were in that condition. And it, it's really good and really interesting. And at the same time, it's not going to enlighten you one iota about the actual experience. So... So I guess what what I thought I would do is go through a, a personal experience of mine because I'm in the best possible place to tell you what all that stuff felt like or what it what it seemed to mean to me. And people say that a lot about mystic experiences that it was the most meaningful or one of the most meaningful experiences of their life or that it brought them some sort of understanding or some sort of resolution or some sort of peace or some sort of confidence about questions that are impossible to answer about existence, about the meaning of life, about, you know, the existence of God, about the afterlife, about all those sorts of crazy things. So, you're, you know, you're definitely not going to get a thorough understanding of that from, from, from a film or a poem or, or um, you know, or even the episode that Kyle and I did on Sunday where I was doing my best to, to tell you. It's not, it's not enough. But it does do some things, you know. It does, it does reinforce the reality of those sorts of experiences. It does help us to... to hone in on what's common in those experiences, what seems important, um, you know, and I think all that is super valuable. And if you're not, if you're not ever going to have a mystic experience or if you're not going to pursue that, then I think this is valuable. It's valuable to hear it from somebody else. So I'll ask the question again. What are we doing today, Chris? We're going to do exactly what we did, Kyle and I, on Sunday, but we're not going to do it from the perspective of my of my personal mystic experience. What we're going to do is take it from somebody who maybe did it better than better than me, 
um, a guy named William James. Uh, William James was an American philosopher. Um, he wrote a really famous book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It was a book that I heard spoken of a lot. I saw quoted a lot in other stuff I was reading, and I never wrote it. I never read it, rather. And I bought it, like I do uh, with lots of books. Bought it from the Half Price Bookstore. Got a nice beat-up old paperback copy sitting there, and it just sat there. And I was like, this is, a, this is an opportunity. Read the damn thing. So I did. And um, what I have to bring to you today is William James' version of, well, partly of his, of his personal experience, but also the accounts of a bunch of other people that he spoke with or read about in journals um, that had mystic experiences. And, and the varieties of religious um, experience, it was published in 1902 or something like that. So it goes back a long way. So the idea here is we're going to be hearing these same sorts of stories, but in a time machine, in a freaking time machine. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to the 1800s. We're going to go back to uh, the Middle Ages. We're going to go back to antiquity, and we're going to we're going to hear people people's accounts of these types of mystic experiences in all of those periods of time. So you're not going to have to take it from me. You're going to be able to take it from Plotinus. You're going to be able to take it from Walt Whitman. So, without further ado, let's do it. All right, here are my notes. All right, so I told you guys before, I like to write intros and conclusions, like just little paragraphs when I do these podcasts, because I think they, they go better, they go over better, they sound more authentic when they're authentic. So when I'm just talking, I'm just telling you what I think, um, it's a little bit less so if I have something prepared. And you can tell, you know, I'm going to read it to you and I'm going to do it just now. And uh, it's going to sound like something that I wrote. Um, but I think it's important because it's really hard to ease in and it's really hard to ease out of complicated topics. So this is just going to be the pattern. Uh, you know, I'm, I've done it before. I'm going to do it here. Um, the intro, though, I have to say, this one kind of sounds to me like I like I was reviewing the book. <laughs> like, if you, you know, you look at the back of a book. And there's a bunch of people telling you how great it is. It kind of, to me, seems like I did it. This is what I did. So it wasn't intentional. But here it goes. All right. William James was a psychologist turned philosopher and one of the first modern academics to tackle the question of religion and religious experience rationally. He did so during one of the most exciting times in the history of human understanding. Oh, how I wish I'd lived among them. All right, so this is something people say, like, if there's a t time in history where you feel like you should have been born, you know? Like, there's a time, there's a, there's a, there was a period movie you saw about Victorian England, and you just thought to yourself, God damn, I, I, these people have sensibilities like me. They like what I like. I should have been born in Victorian England. That, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's, you were watching Gladiator, and you were like, fucking Rome, yes. I, I wish I was in, you know, first century BC Rome. You know, or ancient Egypt or something. like. There's periods of time that have tremendous appeal to people for different reasons. And when William James was writing, this was one of those times for me. So, like early 1800s to the early 1900s, or maybe mid-1800s to mid-1900s, it, it's a really fascinating time for the types of stuff that I'm interested in. And a lot of the people that I read getting into this when I, as I was growing up were from that period. 
So what do I mean? So the century from the maybe early 1800s to the early 1900s saw the rise of Darwinism, but also of spiritualism. You ever heard of spiritualism? So spiritualism sought to understand and revive our connection to spirituality. Okay, so you can imagine if evolution evolution came about in the 18, when it, whatever it was, 1860s maybe? Anyway, when evolution, when uh, the origin of species was written and you know evolution as an idea became sort of uh, front and center in science, it was revolutionary. We all know that. Science wasn't born when, when the origin of species was, you know, was published, but it certainly changed the game. And so this is a time during, you know, right after the origin of species was published and people had time to digest it. It was absolutely changing our, our, our science. Um, so that was going on and spiritualism all of a sudden was going on. So you can imagine if people are getting pulled more and more into this scientific, empirical kind of mind frame. The one that we exist in today, basically, that was de- developing. It, what it does is it pulls you away from explanations that were provided by religion, and it pulls you towards explanations that were provided by science. And people people start to say, you know, it's not that God created the heavens and the earth, it's that there was a big bang. You know, it's not that God poofed the animals into existence, it's that they evolved over a long stretch of time, you know, with random mutations and the survival of the fittest and all that kind of stuff. So there's, there is a conflict, right? People are getting pulled away from spirituality. You know, this is when church attendance is first starting to decline and people are, you know, people are changing, you know, fundamentally. So spiritualism comes about and, you know, if you've heard of it before, you would know it brought us things like the seance and automatic writing, Right? You guys have I brought up Victorian England. You guys kind of kind of know that 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 idea. A bunch of rich people sitting around a table holding hands, a huckster with a with a glass globe in the table, talking to dead people. You know that? That's where it came from. Spiritualism. Automatic writing, if you guys don't never heard of that, that's the kind of stuff where you go into a trance, right? Or you get possessed by a spirit and you write down things and you come you come back to come to, right? You come around and have no memory of having written it. And people did this in you know the Victorian <laughs> Victorian period. Um, so it brought us the seance, it brought us automatic writing, but it also brought us such colorful characters as Aleister Crowley and Madame Blavatsky. You guys ever heard of those people? If not, that's worth a Google. Aleister Crowley, Madame Blavatsky. You know who else was a spiritualist, by the way? The guy that published The Origin of Species with Charles Darwin. Dun, dun, dun. You, you weren't expecting that, that, that surprise, were you? Alfred Wallace. He published this, The Origin of Species, or well, he published The, the Theory of Evolution with Charles Darwin because they were working on it you know, together, not together, but they were working on it at the same time and they found out about it, so they decided to publish together. That's a name that you have, probably haven't heard of. It's not... It's not as name as recognizable as Charles Darwin, and you might wonder why. And I just told you why. Because the brilliant genius, Alfred Wallace, who came up with the idea of evolution, right along the same lines as Charles Darwin, who, by the way, kind of had a leg up in the effort because his grandpa was Erasmus Darwin, who had the idea of evolution two generations before him. You know, you might say Alfred Wallace was the more original thinker of the two. You never heard of him. 
because he was a spiritualist. Because he said stuff that bordered on religious. He said stuff that bordered on the hippy-dippy. At a time when science was trying to separate themselves from religion altogether. And Alfred Wallace went down that garbage chute, for lack of a better word. But I also think it's an interesting dichotomy, and it speaks to the time. Like This is the time of Darwinism and the time of spiritualism. Couldn't be more different. And one of the guys that was involved, Alfred Wallace, was both. So just think about that. A world when, a world where somebody who comes up with, the, with a theory of evolution by natural selection can also participate in seances, right? That's the world I'm talking about. This is the period that brought us the idea of the unconscious with Freud's publication of On the Interpretation of Dreams. By the way, that's another book that I've purchased that's sitting here. It's not been opened. That's been here forever. I will get to it. That was our, um, also our first attempt at comparative religion. So that was brought to us by um, James Frazier's The Golden Bough, published in 1890, right? Our first attempt at understanding the evolution of culture by a guy named Edward um, Burnett Tyler, E.B. Tyler, his pioneering, pioneering work on cultural anthropology from the 1860s all the way up through basically the turn of the century. And then William James, he was in good company and contributed the varieties of religious experience in 1902. And this was an examination of the psychological or cognitive basis of religious experience and the different ways in which it's, it's expressed and understood. So together with other massive figures like Carl Jung, Max Mueller, Andrew Lang, and others, the 21st century was teed up to unravel the deepest mysteries of the self, the psyche, the human condition, and perhaps God itself. So that brings us to the varieties of religious experience. I'm going to focus on what William James had to say about, about mysticism. Because, well, you guys have hear me say that word all the time. Mystic experience. Mystical experience. What, it, what does it mean? I mean, you, because of context, you probably understand kind of what I'm getting at. But William James was the first guy to tell us what that means. Like giving us a definition. And it's a good one. So we'll get there. But I did focus on the stuff that he, that he talked about in terms of um, mystic experience. He has a whole beginning section about the psycholo um, psychology of, of religious experience. But what I was more interested in was this stuff. So here we go. This is, a, this is a section called Reality of the Unseen. All right, William James said, The whole universe of concrete objects swims in a wider and higher universe of abstract ideas that lend it significance. Such ideas form the background for all our facts, the fountainhead of all the possibilities we conceive of. Everything we know is what it is by sharing in the nature of one of these abstractions. We can never look directly at them, for they are bodiless and featureless, but we grasp all other things by their means. All right, so this is a lot to unpack, but it's awesome. So he says, the whole universe of concrete objects swims in a wider and higher universe of abstract ideas. Okay, so what's that picture like? So you remember Kyle and I talking about uh, what God is, and we often say that it's something like ob whatever objective reality is, and that seems to be something like potential. I heard 
I heard uh, Jordan Peterson called. Uh, he uses the phrase um, quantum potentiality or something like that just the other day, and I, I liked it. I was like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. So this is what he's saying. You can imagine uh, an ocean of potential, you know, an infinite ocean of potential. So close your eyes and imagine whatever that might look like to you. And all of the concrete objects of the world, material reality, the planets, the stars, you and me, we all swim in this ocean of abstract ideas. And it's those abstract ideas that surround them that give them their significance. And that may sound weird to you, but it reminds me of something we talked about when we did episodes on the um, postmodernists, because they, they criticize language and they talk about the meanings of, of things and how there really isn't a meaning to anything, how, how uh, one word is associated with a bunch of other words, and those words are associated with a bunch of other words still. So the meaning of words are circular, you know? A word doesn't really mean anything to a postmodernist. It just refers to some other word that doesn't mean anything. But what's interesting about it is when you end up having this cloud of associations, right? It's like one word has, is surrounded by a cloud of other words. And there's some thread through all of these associated words. That's a, that's a meaning, right? You can tease out of it. It's like there isn't a meaning to any of those words. They only refer to other words. But if you look at the cloud of associations, then suddenly it has significance. Then you can start to see what the thread is that connects them all, and that is the meaning. That's where it's coming from. So there's this idea like that. And it's, it's interesting because this idea of meaning being this cloud of association, that's something that comes up in psychology. You know, it's like, you know, tell me about your dream and what do you think that means? You, you know, you, you can all picture that guy laying on the couch with Freud smoking his pipe or cigar or whatever it was he smoked. Cigars, I think. Um, and, and they talk about that. Associations, right? What, what does this, you know, item, item in your dream mean to you? And where, does that, where, where can we go from there? What do you think that means? It's all about associations. And we see this same picture in quantum physics in a different way. But I think it's so interesting when, when quantum physicists talk about the most fundamental uh, particles that make up reality, this is exactly how they describe them. They describe, um, you know, a little bit of matter, a proton, and a neutron. And surrounding them are these electrons. And the electrons are so small... Uh, that they are subject to, you know, all these qu weird quantum rules. And what that means is that the electrons, the part that's interacting with other things, right, that, it doesn't exist in any one place. It exists as a cloud of probability. It, it exists all around the nucleus of that atom, all at the same time. And until it interacts with something or until it's observed, says, says quantum physics... That's how it exists. It doesn't exist in one place, in one, you, know, uh, it, it, you know, as a particle in one place with certainty. It's everywhere. It's a cloud of probability, just like we talked about a cloud of association a minute ago. And this is how William James is describing the universe. Amazing. The whole universe, he says, swims in a wider and higher universe of abstract ideas. And those are what lend its significance. That's where the meaning comes from. Man, that's beautiful. And he's saying such ideas form the, f the background for all of our facts, the fountainhead of all possibilities. Well, that's exactly what I just described when I tried to describe God as potentiality. What is that? The fountainhead of all the possibilities. 
anything that can come into being, anything that can happen, is is within though the infinite potentiality, right? And then he says we can never look directly at them, for they are bodiless and featureless, but we grasp all other things by their means. And that's basically what I said at the beginning, talking about cloud of associations. You know, again, from the postmodern perspective, language has no meaning. And words have no meaning. They, it's just a circular logic that refers to other things that have no concrete meaning. But when you look at the cloud of association, suddenly there's meaning. So the individual objects, they're not, you know, they're not what they seem to be. They're bodiless. They're featureless. And yet we grasp all other things by their means. What does that mean? Well, think about this. Everything you perceive, everything you experience in the world, you understand in its relationship to all other things. And you may not think that, maybe because nobody ever put it that way to you or nobody ever asked you the question, but I'm sitting here in my podcast studio and, uh, you know, I'm looking at objects. You know, this room, a room is a good example. I'm looking at this room and the door is in a particular position and the art on the walls in a particular position and the couch is in a particular position. Um, the room as a whole, it exists as a, as a interaction between all of the different possibilities and how things are. You know, the room as a whole is conceived of, you know, in the c- c- comparing and contrasting of all of, the, all of its possibilities. William James go- goes on, he says, The absolute determinability of our mind by abstractions is one of the cardinal facts in our human condition. We seek them just as they were so many concrete beings, and beings they are, beings as real in the realm which they inhabit as the changing things of, of sense are in the realm of space. So he's saying that these abstractions these things that are you know don't have any meaning in and of themselves that we seek them out as if they were so many concrete beings we seek them out as if they were something real and he says they are he says and beings they are beings as real in the realm in which they inhabit as the things in our sense experience are real so this is important because the idea that we have these abstract ideas at all and that we hold them to be important and sacred and fundamental, it's sort of unexplainable. It's sort of inexplicable, you know? Because we're creatures that are designed to survive, and having, having ideas, holding beliefs, that takes up mental real estate, and we only have so much, right? But holding those ideas and putting all this attention and effort into these abstract ideas like God and religion as, as, as an example, how does that help us to survive, you know, from, from the perspective of natural selection or, or you know, uh, survival of the fittest, how does that help us to survive? It's kind of hard to imagine if I'm spending a bunch of time philosophizing or seeking after abstractions. You know, how is that helping me, you know, in the Stone Age to survive? And yet, th- those things stay with us. And William James says that they're part of our human condition. It's just part of being human. All right, so at this point, William James starts to give us quotes from other people um, to kind of ease into it. So I'm going to give you one. He's quoting the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, uh, describing a visionary experience or a hallucination, but but in a waking state. 
um, that somebody reported, and it appeared to be to, to them ethereal. It appeared to, to them to be supernatural, this experience that they're having. And the way they described it is this. that He said, but the stuff appeared semi-transparent, reminding me of tobacco smoke in consistency. So you hear you have somebody who had a vision, they knew it was a vision, and they came out of it and they're trying to describe what it was they saw. And what they say is that it was a semi-transparent substance, and it remind, reminded them of tobacco smoke. And I don't know what that makes you think of, you know. It kind of makes me think of uh, ghost stories, you know. People seeing um, wispy, you know, shapes and, and things and, and not being able to explain them. Things that look like clouds or shadows or, you know, that sort of thing. But he says it reminded him of tobacco smoke. And for me, if you guys remember me t- telling you about this, uh, the DMT experience in particular um, produces effects like this and other psychedelic experiences. And it's something that is reported in mystical experiences that people will see wispy, smoky patterns. Sometimes they're geometrical. Sometimes they're, they're not that defined. Sometimes they take shape and, be, and become a form, you know, a form of, uh, like, like I said, geometric patterns or maybe a form of a human being. And I have a I have an experience that I've talked about on the podcast. It's really very much like that. Um, it's, it, it's something that I've experienced that takes the form of this wispy, smoky, swirly substance. It's not, <clears throat> you know, it's not material exactly. It's something that seemed to me like it was far away and close up right right in my face. It seemed like it was far and near at the same time. That seemed significant to me. I've also got an Alex Gray painting on the wall behind me called Dying, and I've talked about it before. It's worth a Google, uh, but Alex Gray depicts a person laying on his deathbed, and uh, there's this wispy, smoky, swirly stuff that's coming out of out of the dying person's head and kind of going up into the into the heavens. And it's uh, it's really along the same lines. It's really, really quite quite beautiful. All right, <clears throat> quote number two is a lady named Madame Ackerman, and he's he's giving her visionary account, uh, and this was something that was in an ordinary waking state um, when, it, when it happened. And she says, I experience a strange feeling of being in a dream. It seems to me as if I have loved and suffered, and that ere long I shall die in a dream. My last word will be, I have been dreaming. Okay, so that's interesting. And it kind of reminds me of The Matrix a little bit there too, but... Uh, if you guys remember the ma- in the movie The Matrix, uh, Neo has this feeling, he has this nagging feeling that something's not right. You know, there's a glitch in The Matrix that he's noticed subconsciously. Something's not right. Reality's, you know, something about reality seems like it, it's, it's fooling me. Like there's something really different about this that I'm not seeing. And this is what she's describing. She said, it seems to me as if I have loved and suffered, and ere long I shall die in a dream. So that, real, that realization for her is like, look, something occurs to me like <clears throat> the reality that I've always thought was the most real thing, this, this, the perception in my subconscious existence and or, or, uh, subjective ex- existence and all that, seems like it's not real exactly. It seems kind of like a dream. And I get this, you know, it seems like she's getting this revelation or this, aha, it just comes through like, hey, something's nagging at her, that her reality, she describes it as the most real thing's in your reality, the things that you love and the things that you suffer, you know, love and pain, the most real things possible. And she said, those things seem like they've happened in in a dream. 
and she's like, my last words when I, you know, when I'm die, when I die, and I know the truth, my last words are going to be, I have been dreaming. All of this is a dream. And that's important. You know, it's really important. In fact, it might be one of the first things that send people down a mystic route in their life is when they have that feeling. You know, for me, it was, well, it's hard to pinpoint exactly, but it's realizing, you know, mostly scientific learning is realizing there's all sorts of things going on, you know, all around me all the time that are difficult to explain or impossible to explain and that are not that are not obvious to anyone. <clears throat> like, you know, like not being able to experience um, the, the consciousness or reality of, of the different parts of your own body, you know, like the cells in your body or, you know, your organs or your, uh, the, you know, there, there are other things going on on the molecular level, on the atomic level, and you don't have any connection to those things, even though they're happening in your own body. You know, that's amazing. Um, you know, and then questions about meaning, questions about interest. I've said this before. It's like, where do your interests come from? You know, I've always had this deep longing and, and interest in the idea of God. Where does it come from? I have no idea, but it's been there since I was five years old. It's been there as long as I can remember. Where do your interests come from? It's, it's completely baffling. So when there's things like that that you, that you encounter, that you realize are... Are incomplete. You know your experience is incomplete. So you 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 walk around living your life thinking this is how things are, but it's only a tiny fraction of what things are like. You know. You know I've used the example of like color blindness before as well. It's like, you know, to to imagine that uh, there are people that can't see colors the way that you do, and there's perfectly rational and scientific reasons for that. Well, it it makes me wonder. Well, what about what about what I see? Am I am I quote unquote healthy vision? Am I quote unquote healthy waking state of mind? You know, am I seeing only a fraction of what's out there to be seen? Am I experiencing only a fraction of what there is to be to be to experience? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. You know, um, so what that means is that there's a whole chunk of reality, maybe even the largest chunk, probably the largest chunk that we have absolutely no experience of, absolutely no knowledge of. And maybe it's impossible for us to. So if our experiences are like that, they're incomplete, then it's sort of like what Madame Ackerman is saying. It's sort of like we're existing in a dream, in a, in, a, in a partial truth, in a partial reality. All right, so back to William James. He says, We may lay it down as certain that in the religious fear of experience, many persons possess the objects of their belief, not in the form of mere conceptions, but rather in the form of quasi-sensible realities directly apprehended. Quasi-sensible realities directly apprehended. So that's the idea of having an experience that, that isn't attributable to one of your five senses. You know? Something unexplainable uh, in the ordinary ordinary fashion, and that's certainly going to bring us into a religious conversation. All right, so we're going to go back to some other examples. He gives a uh, an account from the Starbuck manuscript collection, and I don't know who Starbuck is or um, 
what this man- manuscript collection is, but apparently it's psychological in nature. And uh, this is somebody's account from the Starbuck manuscript collection. It reads like this. And this is a good one, by the way. Here we go. <clears throat> I remember the night in almost the very spot where my soul opened out into the infinite. And there was a rushing together of the two worlds, the inner and the outer. It was the deep calling unto deep. The ordinary sense of things around me faded. It was like the effect of some great orchestra when all the separate notes have melted into one swelling harmony that leaves the listener conscious of nothing save that his soul is being wafted upwards and almost bursting with its own emotion. The darkness held a presence that was all the more felt because it was not seen. I could not any more have doubted that he was there than that I was. Indeed, I felt myself to be the less real of the two. I have stood upon the mount of vision and felt the eternal round me. I stood face to face with God and was born anew of his spirit. There was no destruction of the old, but a rapid, wonderful unfolding. Having once felt the presence of God's spirit, I have never lost it again. I feel in writing of it, I have overlaid it with words rather than put it clearly to your thought. Okay, so that's a good one. Now, obviously, obviously a Christian wrote that, and you can you can tell there's Christian themes in here, but but they're not exclusively Christian themes. I want to talk about some of this stuff. So, first thing that comes through is that the experience was obviously really meaningful, impactful. It's something that he said he's never forgotten about. And it's also something that he says, even writing about, he can never quite make it clear. And that's what he says. I feel in writing of it, I have overlaid it with words rather than putting it clearly to your mind. So this is only a half-assed, incomplete way of getting the point across, which we've already, we've already talked about. But it's interesting to hear him say that. He's like, you know, this is not, this is not it. This is just the best I can do. And I remember a quote, I don't know if it's apocryph- apocryphal or not, I think it's a real, real quote from Thomas Aquinas who, uh, who had a mystic experience. And he's one of the church fathers, you know, he's super, super important in Christian theology. He's the guy that wrote down all the arguments for, for the existence of God and, and all kinds of stuff. Thomas Aquinas, he's a, just, just a, 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 you know, a legend in, in, uh, in the, the Catholic you know, theology. And he said after having a mystic experience, that everything that he'd ever written was worthless, basically. He said that none of it even comes close to the truth of the experience that he had, to the point where he actually said something about, you know, burning all of his works. You know, it's like they're, they're as, a, as nothing compared to this experience. And this is, what, this is what I mean. A mystic experience is like that. All right, so going back up here, he says, The ordinary sense of things around me faded. Okay, so that's not an uncommon thing to hear kind of going into a, uh, to a mystic experience like this. He said that the effect was like a great orchestra where all of the different notes and harmonies sort of come together into oneness and it, it sort of washes away your, your sense of being there. It's like you're participating in the music. If you've ever been like at, a, like at a concert, and Kyle and I have used this example before, where you just get carried away with the, with the music and the crowd and there's a feeling where you do lose your sense of self to a certain degree and it's 
not at all dissimilar to what people call an ego death from these sort of mystic or psychedelic experiences. An ego death, it's like your, your selfness goes away and you become part of the experience, you know? And that's very, very common, commonly reported in psychedelic experience. It's part of that mystic experience for sure. It's also interesting that he uses this music analogy because for him, what's important about it is the oneness. It's all the notes coming together into, into one thing and then at the same time losing your sense of self. I mean, I couldn't ha- describe a mystic experience any better. Those are the components you need. You know, this feeling of oneness, uh, the loss of, of the sense of self. Also, emotion. And and he doesn't leave this out. He says, and almost bursting with its own emotion. And I've said that before many times. The psychedelic mystical experience, um, whatever you want to call it, 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 it can be visual. Um, but it, it, what's really important about it are the emotions that are felt during the experience. It's one of the things that's, you know, that distinguishes these types of experiences. All right, and this bit here is really interesting. He says, I could, I, he said, uh, I could know, I could not anymore have doubted that he was there than that I was. So when he's having this experience and he says he here, he's talking about God. So I could no more have doubted that God was there. So when his sense of self vanished, he felt as though he was in the presence of God. And, uh, and that's a powerful feeling. He said, I could not have doubted that he was there uh, any more than that I was there. He said, indeed, I felt myself to be the less real of the two. And I think that is absolutely fundamental. <laughs> I felt myself to be the less real of the two. So imagine you find yourself in that situation. You got your ordinary understanding of self and your feeling of identity and personhood and selfhood and individuality, and it it comes it clashes together with this unity, this this abstract idea of God, um, and your you what you take away from that is that the experience of your own reality is less real than this psychedelic reality that that you've encountered there. This 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 thing that comes through as God. And that's what he says. I felt the eternal round about me. I stood face to face with God. That's what he says. And you hear people say this in psychedelic experience, even though they're having what's clearly a visionary experience and not happening in the here and now, in the physical world. People say that it felt more real than real, that the reality being experienced in that mystic experience is super real, you know? And then you got this bit where he says, I stood face to face with God and was born anew of his spirit. Okay, so this is what I mean by, this is almost certainly a Christian who wrote it because we talk about that, being born again. You know, that, 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 that experience is pretty fundamental to, to uh, Christian theology, that you, that you can be born again, whatever that means. And people find it difficult to understand what that means, you know. Unless you have reinvented yourself, you know, unless you, let's say, were a, were a drug addict or, or whatever, and you suffered and got to a very low place and you suffered for a long time and you dug your way out of it and you became, your, you became somebody new because you had to, because the old you was, was, was you know, corrupted and, and irredeemable and was pulling, dragging you down and you had to reinvent yourself to, to have a new life, you know? People who have done that, understand what I'm trying to explain. People who haven't are probably like, what is this guy saying? But you understand, you know, being born anew. How about this? 
um, this is a silly example, but imagine you were a teenager and you moved and you get to go to a new school and you're like, this is my opportunity to be whoever I want. Nobody knows me. I'm going to reinvent myself. Something like that, but something way more profound. Being, being born anew, being born again. Um, that's, that's what he's describing in this mystic experience. All right, so I don't want to put I don't want to put the cart too too far ahead of uh, the horse here. So let me just keep keep reading. Here's another quote: "God surrounds me like the physical atmosphere. He is closer to me than my own breath. In Him, literally, I live and move and have my being." Beautiful. It's short but beautiful. Um, God surrounds me like the physical atmosphere. So that's a realization. I've said this before, like um, uh, you know. Being, reality, is is consciousness within consciousness. It's a pattern within a pattern. So imagining the cosmos itself to be God and you to be God existing within it. So you're God within God. That's what I'm trying to describe. This is what, this, is what this quote is saying. God surrounds me like the atmosphere. So you get this feeling like the place that you exist, where you exist, the place where you can exist, that that place is God, you know? Then it says, he is closer to me than my own breath. You remember earlier when I was talking about that wispy, smoky stuff, and I said my experience of it was like that. Like it was far away, but it was also super close, like right in my face. The, the, the feeling that I came away with was that whatever it was I was seeing was supposed to be, it was supposed to be within me and without me. You know, it was supposed to be so close to me that it was, I was crossing my eyes looking at it because it was me. But it was also far away. It was also distant and can be observed. It was near and far. And this is exactly what this person said. It was closer to me than my own breath. And then he says, In him, literally, I live and move and have my being. So that's again. Imagine God as a place. Imagine God as the cosmos. And that's the place where you live and move and have your being within God. It's very mystical. Very beautiful. All right, so then William James says, Our impulsive belief is always what sets up the original body of truth. And our articulated, verbalized philosophy is but its showy translation into formula. Instincts lead, intelligence does but follow. Okay, so so there's a lot here, but it's really interesting. So he says, Our impulsive belief is always what sets up the original body of truth. And our articulated verbalized philosophy is its showy translation. What does he mean by that? He means that we have an experience, like a mystic experience. And we believe that that is truth. You know, it's realer than real, like we said. Uh, hard to argue, that's the truest of true. We believe that. Um, we believe that because we, we had the experience, by the way. You know, it's, people talk about having faith, but it's really difficult. Um, you know, if you've never had the experience... But once you do, faith is not a problem. So this is what he's saying, that we have this experience, and then we create a way of understanding it. So you can imagine, you have a mystical experience, you have an experience of God. Then you turn around and you want to describe it to people, like I'm doing today, like, I, like Kyle and I did last Sunday. You're trying to explain it to people, and what happens? You create philosophy, you create religion, that's what happens. And none of it, none of it cuts to the heart exactly of the experience because you have to have it, you know, you have to have it for yourself. But it, but it, it's this, it's this, the next best thing. 
And I just think it's funny that he says you have this genuine experience that you can't deny because it's experienced. And then you turn it into this showy translation into formulas, right? He says instinct leads, intelligence does but follow. So instincts, you know, instincts are, are towards behavior. And we have a religious instinct. So that religious instinct leads you to have the religious experience. It leads you to have a mystic experience. Understanding what that experience is like. This is what he says, intelligence does but follow. That's just your interpretation of the experience. It's your best bet of putting it into words. But you're not capturing the essence of it. You're not capturing all of it. You're just doing a showy translation. And that's our introduction to religion. Um, and, and so William James will talk about different religions. What I want to do is skip all that. I want to, I want to focus on the experience. I want to focus on the experience that William James just referred to that generates all the religions and the philosophies. What is the experience? So that, I believe, is the mystic experience. So we're going to skip to the next section, which is called mysticism. And this is where William James is going to do a good job of defining this. So you guys wonder, what what, I, what, I, what am I talking about when I say mystic experience? What does mysticism mean? Well, here we go. William James says, One may say truly that personal religious experience has its root in mystical states of consciousness. I don't think a more true thing has been said. Certainly not about religion. One may say truly that personal religious experience has its root in mystical states of consciousness. So he makes a distinction here when he says personal religious experience. This is something personal to you, unique to you. It's not something you're doing in a church with a bunch of other people, although it it might happen there. It's not something you're doing with anyone. It's something that happens to you. It's a personal experience. He says that has its root in mystical states of consciousness. It's also important to note, he doesn't say this, but it's important to note that personal religious experience, while it might have its root in mystical states of consciousness, it is the root of of religion, right? So a religion as a personal experience becomes religion as a social experience. It becomes something that we're doing together with church and rituals and holy books and, you know, that sort of thing. All right, William James says... What does the expression mystical states of consciousness mean? He says, I will simply propose four marks, which when an experience has them, may justify us in calling it mystical. So here's four points. You're going to look for these four points. If you have all four of these points in an experience, it's a mystical one. All right, so the first one is ineffability. Ineffability. It defies expression. No adequate report of its contents can be given in words. Its contents must be directly experienced, cannot be imparted to others. Mystical states are more like states of feeling than states of intellect. So that's a description of ineffability. So the experience should be ineffable. It's difficult to express. It's difficult to put into words. And even when you do, it feels like you're you're missing something like sand through your fingers. And I've I've tried to describe that already so far, but you get the idea. He also says it's more like a state of feeling than a state of the intellect. And I told you before how important the emotional component is to it. Okay, so that's the ineffable. The next he says it's, it's a noetic quality. A noetic quality. What does he mean by that? You guys, if you're Dan Brown fans, may have heard the word noetic before. If not, probably like me, you've never heard of it. 
So the description of noetic qualities is this. Mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance. And as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority. Okay. So a noet- the noetic part is like the experience seems to be telling you something. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear people say that either immediately after um, a mystic experience or, or shortly after, once they've had time to digest it and think about it. They will say, it seemed like there was a message to it. It seemed like it, the, the experience was telling me this or leading me here. So there, there's this idea that, that a mystical experience is also uh, a state of knowledge. It feels like an illumination or a revelation. Um, everything everything f- feels meaningful, you know? That's also reported. And it says, as a rule, they carry with them a sense of, of authority, a curious sense of authority. And that's what I was getting at earlier when I said, realer than real, right? So if you have an experience like this, you, you don't question it. It's kind of impossible to question it because it seems realer than real. It seems like above reproach. And you have to kind of experience it to know what I mean. But that's what he means when he says it has a curious sense of authority. Because it leaves you thinking, this is the truth for sure. And I might be able to doubt everything else, but this experience, I cannot doubt. It has a a curious sense of authority, of truth. Number three is transience. Okay, mystical states cannot be sustained for long. They fade into the light of common day. When faded, their quality can but imperfectly be reproduced in memory. So I can, I can attest to that. Transience. It's like waking up from a dream. Think about it that way. You have a crazy, vivid dream. You wake up. You, you know, you can remember all those details. 20 seconds later, when you pick up your pen to write down the crazy dream you had, you can't remember any of those details. So this is, the, this is, what, this is what they mean. Mystical experiences have this sort of um, character. That they fade away, and they're really difficult to remember, at least in the way you were experiencing them during the experience. And the last one is passivity. It says, the mystic feels as if his own will were in abeyance, as if he were grasped by another superior power. So this is the ego death experience. It's like when he says that your will is in abeyance, that means that you give up your will. You give up your will to the will of the experience to the will of God. Um, in fact, this is something Kyle and I have talked about from, a, from the psychedelic, psychedelic perspective. When you're in an experience like this, they're very often overwhelming. And if you fight against them, if you try to control them or try to prevent them from doing what they're doing, that's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for a bad trip. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's something kind of Taoist about that experience that comes to my my mind. It's like the, you know, the power of of non-being, the power of inaction. You, you want to do nothing. You want to go with the flow. You want to, um, you want to. Oh, there's a there's a word that comes to my mind uh, from Islam. Um, oh, what is the word? It's it's the definition of Islam. I can't I can't think of it. Um, ah, well, in any case. Passivity. So we've got ineffability, we have the noetic quality, transience, and passivity. Um, now this, this passivity line, at the end where it says, it's as if you were grasped by a superior power, you know, that, that's, you know, there's an awe feeling that, that comes with the mystic experience. Like, you know, the first time you see the Grand Canyon or something. I've never seen it in real life, but 
I have seen uh, things like that. And the first time you see something like the ocean or you know the, the Smoky Mountains or something like that, it's as though you're in the presence of something greater than you. That feeling of awe, that's absolutely part of it. But when William James says grasped by a superior power, you might think of that like like um, you know that feeling of awe, like I'm t- like I'm talking about. Um, but you might also f- think of that as the way people talk about DMT, like they saw aliens or they saw spirits or they saw gods or goddesses. You know, it might take the form of that. The, the important thing is the feeling of awe makes you feel small in comparison, or maybe even non-existent in comparison. And something about that ceasing to exist is connected with the feeling of existing as that superior power. So when you cease to be, when you have that ego death that people talk about, it's not that you go away, you don't. You become the experience. You're no longer something in the experience or having the experience. You become the experience. You become God. You become the superior power. And I think that has to do with the noetic quality. And it has to do with the ineffability. You know, you become God, you're going to be goddamn sure of that, right? When you become God and you have that experience, you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to question it because you were God. That's what I mean. It's very hard to question that experience when it feels like that. You know, it feels realer than real. All right, so William James says, the mystic experience modifies the inner life of the subject you know it, it has deep psychological impact you know we've said this before but but people who have um mystic experiences will say that it's one of the most or certainly one of the most significant experiences of their life and they're life-changing you know they, they're using it for for medical purposes now to help people with ptsd or to help people with drug addiction and things like that um yeah, I would say that those are significant changes to your inner life that allow you to get over something like, you know, an addiction to heroin or or an addiction to food or something. You know, it, it holds it holds a lot of power over us. All right, so William James goes a little deeper. He says, A more pronounced step forward on the mystical ladder is found in an extremely frequent phenomenon. That sudden feeling of having been here before. Okay, so I wrote that down because that's super important. When you have a mystic experience, having this feeling of remembering, this is something that people say, and I can, I agree, I, I can get behind this. It's this feeling of having been there before. It's the feeling of familiarity. It's like you're in this crazy altered state. You're in this place, you know, that's how it seems to you, that you've never been before, that's confounding and befuddling and and something that can't even really be absorbed. And yet, at the same time, and it's overwhelming, by the way, and at the same time, you have this feeling like you're remembering it, like you've been there before. And it's similar to this feeling that, I don't know if you've ever had this, I've had it many times, uh, especially listening to Jordan Peterson or reading Jordan Peterson, as somebody will say something to you that you've never heard before. It's an idea that seems obvious, but nobody's ever put it to you before. Nobody's ever put it that way to you before. And when you hear it, it seems like an enlightening thing. You're like, oh yeah. And the reason it, it it's so satisfying and the reason that it clicks like that is because it's like you already knew it. You know, it's like, 
you remembered. And I now it's coming to my mind. I can't remember who it was. I think it was a, one of those ancient pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, I think. Um, no, no fact checkers on the Two Tongues podcast. So um, that, that there's a, philo- a, Greek, a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher that says something exactly like that. I'm, I'm, I'm losing it, though. Anyway. This feeling like you've been there before, or that it's uh, that you're remembering it. Oh, that's what that's what it was. Uh, that the philosopher said that um, that everything that learn that knowledge that that everything that you learn is like remembering. It might it might have been Plato or Aristotle. Anyway, moving on. William James says they bring a sense of mystery and the feeling of an of an enlargement of perception. Okay, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, the experience is a mystery. Um. I don't even have other words to add to that to make that make any more sense. It's like you know that there's a mystery to the idea of God. You know that there's a mystery to your consciousness and to the world. There's things that we don't know. There's mystery. You know, we don't know where we don't know where any of it came from, for instance, <laughs> for certain. So there's deep deep mystery all around us. And the mystic experience has that same quality. This this quality of 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 a mystery. Um it's not this is for the same reason. It's not like it's a mystery because it's unknown. It's a mystery because it's known. You know, in the experience, that's what you're doing. You're 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 having an experience of this this unknowable mystery. So it's like you've realized it, and it's a very different kind of thing. It's really hard to describe. So I think I'm going to stop there. And then the feeling of an enlargement of perception, which you know you may have heard this before. Kyle certainly mentioned this uh, on Sunday. Um, feeling like the borders and boundaries of yourself um, are a little bit more flexible than you ever thought they were. So Kyle mentioned, I believe it was Kyle, something about having this this sense of the um, boundaries of his body being extended to things around him in a like a, a meditative type of experience. Um, but in a mystic experience, oftentimes it's with other people or with the entire cosmos. It's that, it's like orders of magnitude greater than, you know, feeling like the the edges of your physical body are now, you know, creeping out to encompass the chair you're sitting in. This is like creeping out to encompass everything there ever was. All right, then William James goes on. He says, somewhat deeper plunges into mystical consciousness. Then he's talking about this guy named Charles Kingsley, and he wrote this. When I walk the fields... I am oppressed now and then with an innate feeling that everything I see has a meaning, if I could but understand it. So that's a simple, a simple one, a simple example. But the idea that everything has meaning. Now we, that's, that's absolutely part of the mystic experience, that everything has meaning. Um, having, having that experience in waking life is not all that uncommon. You know, you might have had waves of that before. It's like this, you know, our perceptions are limited, and they need to be limited. We can't be aware of all things at once, we can, and we can't be aware of all meanings at once. We have to be aware of only this limited fraction of, of reality that we can manage and still function and still survive. And that's what perception is. That, that's how perception is an illusion, because it's limited by necessity to a certain degree, by biological limitations, you know? Maybe by cognitive limitations. But Charles Kingsley had that experience just out in the fields one day. Um, just this weird instinct or this weird feeling that all the things that he's been ignoring, 
the meaning all around him is sort of encroaching. It's sort of coming into his his field of experience and you know that that can be an uncomfortable experience it can be confusing but it can also be the most joyful thing you can possibly imagine and i don't know how i don't know how i can add anything more to that um to help you understand you really would have to have the experience to know what i mean but that's the gist all right he goes on he says the next step i refer to the consciousness produced by intoxicants and uh, anesthetics sobriety diminishes discriminates and says no. Drunkenness expands, unites, and says yes. It makes him for the moment one with truth. Now this this passage is really talking about alcohol uh, in context, but he does talk about other things we're going to get there next. But just imagine, you know, um, in a social experience that you had where you were drinking and you had a nice time and everybody was being social and uh, maybe that's contrary to your normal personality. Maybe you usually find it harder to talk to strangers or open up and have fun, but you get a little drunk and suddenly you can. And that's what he says. Sobriety diminishes and says no. Drunkenness expands and says yes. And so you find yourself sometimes in that in that sort of alcohol drunkenness where you become more social, you, you expand your well, you sort of expand yourself to include friends and family and sometimes strangers at the bar. And in some ways, that's, you know, risky or unusual for you. But if everybody's drunk and everybody's in that right state of mind and nobody's angry and nobody's, you know how the, some of those some of those drunk people can be. If In the absence of that, you have a, you have a good time. And it's not unlike the, the experience at the concert, you know. You feel it's like you're one with other people. And uh, that is sort of a low-grade version of this mystic experience. It's a low-grade version of the type of altered state of consciousness that you experience in the mystic experience. So now we're going to go a little deeper, because now he's going to talk about nitrous oxide and ether. Now remember, we're going back to the early 1900s here, late 1800s, early 1900s. So what what medicine was around at that time is pretty limited. And as far as anesthetics go... It was nitrous oxide. So this is what we're going to talk about here. He said, nitrous oxide and ether stimulate the mystical consciousness in an extraordinary degree. I know, this is, this is the good part. Remember, this is William James himself. He says, some years ago, I myself made some observations on this aspect of nit- nitrous oxide intoxication. One conclusion was forced upon my mind at that time that our normal waking consciousness is but one special type of consciousness. Whilst all about it, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. It is as if the opposites of the world were melted into unity. I feel as if it must mean something, something like what the Hegelian philosophy means. So it's interesting, we did those episodes on Hegel uh, not long ago, four of them. So if you want to know what Hegelian philosophy means, you can go back and listen to those episodes, uh, but they're awesome. So this, this one's interesting, and I kind of debated whether I should open with this quote. And the reason is because what William James is admitted to, and it's something that probably would be, wouldn't happen so much today with, uh, with philosophers or, or scientists that want to be taken seriously, he admitted to having a mystic experience. 
He admitted to taking nitrous oxide, becoming intoxicated with it, and having a mystic experience. It's not clear whether that was, you know, during a medical procedure or if this is something that was being done recreationally, and he doesn't say. But he says, One conclusion was forced upon my mind, that our normal waking consciousness is only one special type, and it might maybe it's surrounded all around by other potential forms of consciousness that are entirely different. And, you know, that's not a slap in the face of a sentence. He's just saying, when I, when I was high on this nitrous, nitrous oxide, I was in a different place of consciousness. And, it, and it, it opened up the possibilities for me that there are other types of, con- of conscious experiences. There are altered states of consciousness that exist. And we don't know how many different kinds they are. We don't know anything about them. But they're there. And we, we pretended like they, like they aren't. And they're there all around us. You know, and that's interesting. But it's not groundbreaking. But what is, is the next sentence. No account of the universe can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness disregarded. So William James is saying, look, I had one of these experiences, and I'm not. I, and after having it, I can't be satisfied with any scientific explanation of the universe that doesn't explain to me how these forms of consciousness are possible and what they are. So it was so important to William James that he decided science had to had to address it and until they did this science is incomplete you know science is incomplete if it can't tell us about about these other forms of consciousness that are available to us that are accessible to us that seem you know invisible and yet we can tap into them And he says, it's as if the opposites of the world were melted into unity. So that really is the, is the sentence that shows that, that he had a mystic experience. He said he had an altered state of consciousness, but he had a mystic experience. And how do we know that? Because he said all the opposites were melted into unity. He was one with the universe. That's what the mystic experience is, is all about. And then he says it must mean something like what the Hegelian philosophy means in the short explanation for that is Hegel's talking about what it means to be self-conscious and he says something over and over and over again he says it's like you empty yourself how do, how do I put this he says it's like you empty yourself you empty your consciousness entirely of yourself and when you do that you become something else you become consciousness as subject and if you empty yourself as, from consciousness as subject you become consciousness as object and it requires emptying yourself to get there. And at the same time, it shows you that whatever we're calling the self is both subject and object at the same time. And, and that's what the Hegelian philosophy means. It means to be self-conscious is to recognize that the thing you are is the same thing as the cosmos. It's the same thing as, as everything all around you. That consciousness is like that. Um, all of all of material reality is contained within consciousness, and so are you. And at the same time, your conscious consciousness within it, your consciousness within consciousness, a pattern within a pattern, God within God. And William James is right there with Hegel. All right, so he gives us a bunch of other quotes. Um, I want to read through. This one is um, from a guy named I assume a guy, a J. A. Simons S. Y. M. O. N. D. S. This is what he wrote. Into this pervading genius we pass, forgetting and forgotten, 
And then thenceforth, each is all in God. There is no higher, no deeper, no other than the life in which we are founded. The one remains, the many change and pass, and each and every one of us is the one that remains. Oh, God. Okay, so, I mean, he says, each is all in God. Each is all in God. So this is a this is the first evidence of a sort of fractal picture that comes up, and it does come up in mystic experience. To say each is all, you know, uh, that's like saying that's like saying that anything create anything created in material reality. So you and me, and you know the atoms in our body and everything else, all of those things contain the wholeness of God. All of the individual things are the total God. How is that possible? You know, that's one of these one of these very mind-bendy concepts that everything that's created by God, if you're a religious person, is God in its entirety. And all of those things exist within God. And that's what he's saying. J.A. Simon says, each is all in God. And then he says, there is no higher, no deeper, no other. And what that means is if you're seeking, if you're seeking God, if you're seeking the highest thing that you can find it everywhere. You can find it in your own self. There is no higher, right? Everything is God. Everything is the completeness of God. So if you look at a cell in your body, if you look at an atom, if you look at you know yourself or your neighbor or the cosmos or, or whatever, any, any of those things at any level of analysis is the whole kit and caboodle. There's no such thing as higher or deeper or lower. Everything is God. And he says, the one remains and the many change and pass. And each and every one of us is the one that remains. And what he means by that is, first of all, one is capitalized. And in the mystic, um, in the mystic understanding, one is, is just another way of saying God. So he says, every one of us is the one that remains. And what he means by remains is in being, the one that exists, right? We're, any, any one of us is God. Any one, anything is God. And the one that remains is the one that exists in material reality. We're all going to fade away. We're all going to die and be gone from this material plane. But whilst we're here, we're the one that remains. God within God. Amazing. Amazing. All right, here's another one. Uh, same guy. He says, yet this question remains. Is it possible that the inner self of reality was not a delusion but an actual experience? Is it possible that I, in that moment, felt the undemonstrable certainty of God? The sudden realization of the immediate presence of God is not uncommon. Um, so this is interesting. This is... Um, th- th- this is a question that anybody, anybody reasonable would ask. You have an experience unlike anything you've ever had before showing you a sense of reality different from anything you've ever experienced before. You have every right and every reason to question what in the world is this experience, and is it false? Even though you have that feeling that it's realer than real, a reasonable person is going to question, is this real? You know, is it possible this can be real? You know? And that's what he's doing. He's like, I had this crazy experience, this one with the universe experience, and I'm asking myself, is is it really possible that, that this happened? Or is this, is this some kind of crazy illusion? He says, is it possible that I, in that moment, felt the undemonstrable certainty of God? Whew. 
All right. William James goes on. He says, here is a similar record from the memoirs of Mawilda von Miesenbug. What a name. M-E-Y-S-E-N-B-U-G. All right. She says, I was alone upon the seashore as all these thoughts flowed over me. I was impelled to kneel down before the illimitable ocean, symbol of the infinite. I felt that I prayed and knew now what prayer really is, to return from the solitude of individuation into the consciousness of unity, to kneel down as one that passes away, and to rise up as one imperishable. Man. All right, so uh, Bug's quite the poet because the hair is standing up on my arms right now, so that got to me. It's beautiful. So people talk about, you know, I talked about it earlier, seeing the ocean for the first time and feeling that awe, feeling that feeling of delimiting yourself, you know, diminishing yourself in the presence of this great thing. You know, and that's kind of the example that she, that she brings up. You know, she was there at the seashore and that's the feeling she had. And she said she was impelled to kneel. So she just falls to her knees, you know. And then she prayed and she said, but she knew then what prayer really was. So it's like she, you know, she'd been praying her whole life and never knew what she was doing until this moment. So here she is on her knees, you know, prostrate before this symbol of the infinite. And she's praying. And to, pr- and to pray means to her now to return from her, to return, which is an interesting way of saying it, to return from this feeling of being an individual to being united with everything. And, she, and you remember how we talked about this feeling like, it, like it's remembering, like you've been there before? And this is what she says. She said, it, to pray is to return from your individual reality to, this, to the unity of consciousness. She'd been there before. She felt that way. And then she says this really interesting thing, which is not unlike um, that earlier passage where the, where the guy was talking about being, uh, being born anew. She says... To kneel down as one that passes away and to rise up as one imperishable. Right? That's that's to kneel down as one person and to rise up as another person, right? To be born again. And she says something even more to the point. You know, she says to rise up as one imperishable. So she knelt down as one person. She stood up as God. She stood up as someone who cannot perish. And and if you look at and if you look at the Christian story of Jesus, uh, the idea of um, uh, being born again, when that in the context of a Christian you know theology, what that does is it, it it's allows you to conquer death, right? That's what that's what Jesus says. So she says to rise as one imperishable. That's exactly the same thing as to defeat death. That's that that's what that born again experience is like. All right, now he's going to give us a quote from Walt Whitman. You guys may, may, may know who Walt Whitman is. Uh, it goes like this. Swiftly arose and spread around me the peace and knowledge that pass all the argument of the earth. And I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own. And I know that the spirit of God is the brother of my own. Whew. All right, Walt. That was beautiful. So he talks about how it swiftly spread around him. So he, he's got this feeling that kind of passes over him. And he says that, that it passes all the argument of the earth, which is something like that certainty that, he, that we talked about earlier. It's like there's no argument that's going to shake this feeling. This feeling comes over him. He has this feeling. And he says, what is that feeling? He says, 
I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own. And I know that the Spirit of God is the brother of my own. So he's not going so far as to say, I'm one with God or I am God, or that that's what that experience showed me. But he's, he's tiptoeing in that direction. The hand of God is the promise of my own. And the Spirit of God is the brother of my own. So that feeling for him, that mystical feeling, is, is making his identity and his essence, it's bringing it closer and closer to his, his idea of God. You know, he's not, he's not to the point where he can say, the Spirit of God is my own. But he does say, the Spirit of God is the brother of my own. Right? So he's getting there. He's getting there. He's having those, he's having those intuitions. And then there's another passage from the autobiography of a guy named J. Trevor. It goes like this. It was the most real season. Excuse me. It was in the most real season that the real presence came. And I was aware that I was immersed in the infinite ocean of God. So you remember earlier where the, 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 quote, the quote was something about uh, feeling like that, that God was the atmosphere, like God was all around you. That's what, what, he's, that's what he's talking about here. He also uses the same imagery uh, that, that the Moilda used to talk, about, um, uh, to talk about the symbol of the infinite. It was the ocean, right? And that's what Trevor says. I was immersed in the infinite ocean of God. All right, then William James brings up another guy here. He's, I'll just read you the quote. He says, Canadian psychiatrist Dr. R.M. Buck gives to, to these phenomena the, the name of cosmic consciousness. Dr. Buck says, quote, The prime characteristic of cosmic consciousness is the consciousness of the cosmos, that is, of the life and order of the universe. With these come what may be called a sense of immortality, a consciousness of eternal life, this is, this is where it gets good. Not a conviction that he shall have this, but the consciousness that he has it already. All right, I'm, I'm going to read that again in case that went too quick. So Dr. Buck is actually somebody who whose book we talked about on an earlier episode of the podcast. And it's not dissimilar from William James' um, book that we're reading now. It's a collection of a bunch of people who had experiences, these mystical experiences. And Buck heard people... Um, give these accounts, and he wrote them down. Then he started seeing them in history. He started seeing them all over the place. So he, w- he just compiled this book. It's called Cosmic Consciousness. If you can buy it on Amazon. Um, and it's just a p- compilation of all these very similar to what we're doing here. The reason I chose to do William James' version rather than Buck's version is I think William James' version is, is better. It's better curated. So, um, all right, so back to, this, back to this quote. When he says cosmic consciousness, and we're just talking about the mystic experience. He says that it comes with a sense of immortality or a consciousness of eternal life. Then he says, not a conviction that he shall have this, that he shall have eternal life, but the consciousness that he already does. I feel like if I had sound effects here, I would, I would do a bomb blowing up sound right here. This is absolutely amazing. So when people talk about, especially Christians, talk about being born again and conquering death. It lines up so well with these mystic experiences, um, in particular um, psychedelic uh, versions of these mystic experiences, that people have the, the realization that all is one in consciousness or all is one in God and that that is eternal. And so people coming back from those experiences have these dramatically different 
opinions about death. Fear of death goes away. I mean, almost entirely. They, they did these studies with um, terminal cancer patients. And they did uh, high-dose mushroom, mushroom experiences uh, in a, a medical uh, context. And those people came back, almost all of them, saying that they had lost their fear of death. And that's what Jesus said when he said, you'll conquer death. And that's what Bacchus says when he says, it's not the conviction that you'll have eternal life. It's the conviction that you already do. You're all, that's what I mean when I, say, when I say that I am God. That's a big part of it, or that we are God. What I mean is that we're not going anywhere, you know, that death is not the end. And that's what, that's what the mystic experience tells you. And I don't mean by death is not the end. I don't mean anything about an afterlife. I don't have any strong opinions about what an afterlife might be or if it exists. And we, I, we could talk about that in, in another episode. Um, but I think that's so powerful here. It's, it's the idea of immortality and having it having it for yourself, for your own consciousness. It's like understanding that's what consciousness is. It's eternal. It's not that you have some promise of living forever and then in an afterlife. It's that there is no death anyway. That consciousness endures. Because consciousness is all there is. And when you understand yourself to be conscious, that's what you know. It's not that you're one day going to have eternal life. It's that you already have it. All right. Another interesting bit here. Uh, William James says, It was Dr. Buck's own experience of cosmic consciousness which led him to investigate it in others. All right, so before I continue, I just have to point out, William James admitted earlier that he had a mystic experience on nitrous oxide. And clearly that's what got him interested in this. And he goes on and and tells the same about Dr. Buck, who did basically the same thing William James did, compiled all these different versions of of people who expressed this mystic experience. But I just think it's interesting. Both William James and uh, Buck had a mystic experience. So let me finish this paragraph here. He says, uh, I take the following account of what occurred to him. So here's Dr. Buck's experience. I did not merely come to believe, but I saw that the universe is not composed of dead matter, but is a living presence. I became conscious in myself of eternal life. I saw that all men are immortal, that the foundation principle of the world, of all the worlds, is what we call love. So it's beautiful. There's a couple interesting uh, interesting bits here. He said that the um, that the universe is not composed of dead matter, which is another way of him saying that he had the intuition that all matter was alive, right? And he calls it a living presence. That's something that I would call consciousness. And then he said, I became conscious in myself of eternal life, right? So he became conscious that this living presence is immortal, and that's the thing that that animates him. That's his soul. So he said, I became conscious in myself of eternal life. Then he said that it's the foundation principle of the world, of all the worlds, and it's the thing we call love. And I've said this before, that love is something that does make you feel like you're one with another person. You know, the, the, the object of your love, the person that you love, becomes something like a part of yourself and a part of your identity. And so we all know from like romantic love and love of our parents and all that, we know what this is like a little bit, love. And he said that that feeling is somehow foundational to the world and all possible worlds, you know? It's a beautiful thing. 
It's also interesting, you know, from coming from somebody in the late 1800s, early 1900s, to, to even feel like it's necessary to say all worlds. You know, it's the founding principle of the world, but not just of the world, of all worlds. Um, because it kind of presumes that there might be consciousness or life elsewhere. And, you know, that's just such a, even today, it's such a fringe idea to see Dr. Buck say that, you know, it, it seems like it comes with the mystic experience, and it did for me, you know. Uh, it definitely did for me. I remember one of the things that I left out of uh, the episode we did on Sunday of my own mystic experience was something very much like that. It was something like the truth of the mystic experience would be as true for me as it would be for, let's say, aliens in, in some distant part of the cosmos. And that was an idea that I had during the mystic experience, even though, you know, don't don't think too much about extraterrestrial life or the implications of, of that on religion or anything like that, or consciousness for that matter. It's not really a question that I toy around with, but it came through in the mystic experience, and it came through for Dr. Buck. I just think that's cool. Okay, so uh, William James, back to, back to William James. He says, in India, training and mystical insight has been known from time immemorial. He says, the yogi learns that the mind itself has a higher state of existence, called samadhi. Just as, un- as unconscious work is beneath consciousness, so there is another work above consciousness, not accompanied with the feeling of ego. There is no feeling of I. Then the truth shines and we know ourselves for what we truly are, free, immortal, and identical with the Atman, or universal soul. All right, so we talked about Vedanta Hinduism before, um, and this is basically what he's talking about here. Um, the idea he's recognizing that there's an ancient, ancient religion, you know, the oldest continuously practiced religion in the world. And they have a tradition that says there's something called samadhi, you know, that, that this is like God consciousness. And you, you're like, you know, man consciousness, for lack of a better word. Your, your soul is called Atman and God's soul is called Brahman, according to you know this tradition, and uh, that when, that when you're born, your your Atman is sort of taken from Brahman, and when you die, it goes back. And so the thing that animates you, the thing that you call yourself in your consciousness, it's just a recycled bit of God, you know, going going from God back to biology and back and forth and back and forth, and it's a beautiful idea, and it's a, and it's very much inspired by the same mystical ideas. All right, uh, so here, next, next quote. Uh, James says, Whoso calls the absolute anything in particular, or says that it is this, seems implicitly to shut it off from being that. It is as if he's lessened it. All right, so this is the, about the problem of talking about God at all. So William James, he's going to refer to it as the absolute, but he, that's what he means, God. He points something out that's interesting, and this is important for religion. You know, it's not... Maybe not as important for a mystic experience because it's very much individual, and you know the person who has the experience understands it understands it best. Um, so, he, so he's saying that you come up with an idea of God from an experience like that, but then trying to tell somebody what that means, trying to put labels on it, trying to put it into a box, um, it immediately goes contrary to your goal. Right, the moment you try, you start to try to explain to somebody what your understanding of God is, every word out of your mouth is is falsehood. Every word out of your mouth is going to make them think the wrong thing, and deeper and deeper into into the wrong thing. 
It's like words are, are immediately going to make it less than it is and to make it something different than it is. And that's what he says. He's like trying to make God this, like in quotation marks, implicitly makes it something other than that in quotation marks. If it's this, it can't be that. And that's exactly the wrong way of understanding God. And this is what comes through in the mystic experience. God is not this or that. God is is potentiality. It's this and that, and all possible thises and thats. You know, so to call it this or that, to call it Yahweh or to call it Thor or to call it Tao, whatever you want to call it, you give it a name and you've immediately changed the thing and made it something that it's not. And I find that very interesting because because there's a passage in the Tao Te Ching um, which I love, and I read to you before. I'll read it again. It goes like this. The Tao that can be told of is not the absolute Tao. The names that can be given are not absolute names. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of all things. These two are the same. They may both be called the cosmic mystery. And this is exactly the point. As soon as you give God a name, as soon as you give Tao a name, you've changed it. You're off the mark. And so it has to be something nameless. And that's what, uh, he, that's what he calls um, the origin of heaven and, and earth. The nameless, the thing that can't be given a name. Potentiality. That's the origin of heaven and earth. Oh, man. I couldn't agree more. could not agree more. All right. So now we're going to go back in time a little bit. Um, William James is going to give us a quote from the 1600s uh, from a guy named Jacob Bohm. I'm probably mispronouncing the name. B-O-H-M-E. goes like this. When thou art gone forth wholly from the creature and from that which is visible and art become nothing, then thou art in that eternal one which is God himself. The treasure of treasures for the soul is where she goeth into that nothing out of which all things may be made. I am nothing, for all that I am is no more than an image of being, and only God is to me I am. All right, so hair standing up in my arms again. That's a good one. All right, so what does he mean by this? He says, when thou art gone wholly from the creature and from that which is visible. So what he means by that is when you, when you have an ego death. So when you're gone from yourself as a creature, that means you're you're feeling of self is gone. You're no longer a self. You're, not, you're no longer something visible or material. When that happens, he says, you art become nothing. <laughs> and you remember what Kyle and I was talking about trying to define nothing, non-being and nothingness, and we finally got to that definition last Sunday that, that made sense to both of us, that, that the idea of nothing, you know, as the opposite of something, let's say, it's not nothing the way we generally think. It's not nothing. It's actually potential. So nothing is actually, is, is actually better understood as the potential to be something. Nothing is not nothing. It's not like it, uh, I'm, I'm holding out my hands and I've got nothing in them. It's not like nothing. It's like the potential for something. And that's more like everything. Okay? So when he says, when he says that you art become nothing, then he says, then thou art in the eternal one, which is God himself. So when you become nothing, you become God himself. And that's exactly what the mystic experience is like. Then he describes it. He says, the treasure of treasures for the soul is where she goeth into nothing 
out of which all things may be made. So you have this mystic experience, you go in, you you lose yourself, you go into you become God. That, that that's what he's referring to as nothing. The nothing out of which all things may be made. That's potential. And then and then Jacob Bohm recognizes I am nothing, which, by the way, is just another way of saying I am God. Then he says, for all that I am is no more than an image of being. And so this is that, when he says an image of being, this is related to the idea of man being made in the image of God. It's like saying um, what that lady was saying earlier about it being dreamlike, you know. He's like, I'm not God. I'm the image of God. And it's something like, you know, distant from God. It's somehow separated from him. And he he says, only God is to me, I am. And of course, you know, God is called I am in the Bible, and that's clearly what he's referring to here. But he, what he's saying is the only thing that exists, the only thing that is that, that the only thing that is I am, is God. So Jacob Bohm's existence is God's existence. He's like the thing that I am is is God. The only thing to me that it, that is I am is God. I know that's confusing, uh, but I think he said it better when he said I am nothing, the, the, the nothing out of which all things may be made. <laughs> Unbelievable, and then he gives us he gives us a parallel from Paul. So now we're going to the Bible, and Paul says this: Only when I become as nothing can God enter in, and no difference between His life and mine remain outstanding. <laughs> that's that's okay. That that's beautiful. I never understood it that way from the Bible because I never read it in the same context. But when he when he puts Jacob Bohm's um, explanation right before Paul's about becoming nothing and what that means, then I can see very clearly that what Paul is describing is the goal of a mystic experience, becoming one with God. Only when I become as nothing can God enter in, and no difference between his life and mine remain outstanding. Who knew? Amazing. All right, so we're going to go back a little further in time. I'm going to go to the Middle East. So he's quoting a a person he's calling uh, Goshan Raz. It's a Sufi Muslim from the 1300s. It goes like this. Well, if you guys don't remember, the Sufis are, well, they're kind of the mystical branch of Islam. For that reason, they're sort of discriminated against. But, um, but you'll see what I mean. You'll see why in just a minute. All right, he reads this. Every man whose heart is no longer shaken by any doubt knows with certainty that there is no being save only one. Every being who is separated from himself hears outside of him this tone and this echo. I am God. All right, hair standing up my arms again. It's one of those days, you guys. All right, so this first bit where he says, every man whose heart is no longer shaken by any doubt. What he means by that is when you have the mystic experience and you have, and you have that feeling that it's realer than real and it makes it impossible for you to doubt or question, um, and the way I put this is that when I had a mystic experience and I became God, I was no longer ever able to hold any doubt about the existence of God because I became God. For a moment, I was. And so the reality of that existence is, is true to me, and it's realer than real to me. And that's what, I, that's what I think he's getting at when he says, every man whose heart is no longer shaken by any doubt. That's what I'm talking about. That person knows with certainty that there is no being save only one. 
Okay? You become one with the universe. There's only one God, right? That's what a Muslim would say. That's what a Christian would say. That's what Gulshan Raza said. There's only, there's only one being, and one, and one with a capital O. And then he says, every being who is separated from himself hears outside of himself this voice, I am God. And this separating from a self-business is, is an allusion to the mystic experience. So when you have the mystic experience, you're no longer separated from God. You become God. Right? So when you're in a when you're in a ordinary waking state and you're not in a mystical state you you feel separated from God right and when you're in that when you're in that feeling of estrangement also this is something that comes up in, in Hegel's philosophy that that word estrangement when you feel that estrangement from God like you're separated from God you're not one with God um, that you you hear this voice and this echo that says I am God it seems like it's coming from the outside and so, so what the Sufis ex- explaining to you here is that that voice that seems to be coming from outside is is not. It's coming from inside, and that's what you have to realize. There's only one being, God, and God is that voice calling from the inside of you that's saying, "I am God." All right, we're going to fast forward a little bit more. We're going to go. We're going to go to Plotinus. So this is the 200s uh, CE. Uh, now we're going back to Roman times. And Plotinus says this, What sees is not our reason, but something prior and superior. He who thus sees ceases to be himself, preserves nothing of himself. Absorbed in God, he makes but one with him. That's interesting. When he says what sees is not our reason, but something superior, something prior, that's interesting. So, you know, he's using the word reason. You know, remember, this is ancient Rome, so he, he really means something like consciousness. And so he's saying what sees, like what, what the thing is that's looking out from behind your eyes. It's not reason. It's not your, you know, um, personality. It's not your ego. It's something prior to that. It's something superior to that. It's something like God. Um, and I just think that's, I just, it's surprising, actually, to come from, ancient Rome, but but beautiful nonetheless. Now I'm going to fast forward to the 1800s, and I'm going to give you Madame Blavatsky, who I talked about a little bit earlier. She's one of those people that was associated with that spiritualism, and this comes from the 1800s. So here we go. Madame Blavatsky says, When he has ceased to hear the many, he may discern the one, the inner sound which kills the outer. For then the soul will hear and will remember. And now... Thyself is lost in self, merged in that self from which thou first didst radiate. Behold, thou hast become the light, thou hast become the sound. Thou art thy master and thy God. Yikes. Alright, so Alright, so there's this business about ceasing to be the, to be many and becoming one. So that's very consistent with the mystic experience. The inner sound which kills the outer is is a reference to that ego death type of experience. You know, the inner sound, it's like the inner self. And it's going to, it's going to, like, like Hegel says, it's going to be emptied in order to become the outer self, in, in order to become God. And then it says, the soul will remember, right? And that's just, a, a, again, we see that word, that when you feel yourself to be God, it's not like a new experience, it's like remembering that you've always been that. It's such a strange feeling. And he, Madame Blavatsky says exactly that. 
And she says, and now the self is lost in self. Okay, that's, that's like I said before. God within God, consciousness within consciousness, a pattern within a pattern, and that's what Madame Blavatsky, Blavatsky says. The self is lost in self. Self within self. Then she says, merged in the self from which it first radiated. Who's that? Who's the self from which all the other selves radiate? That's God. And that's what she says. Behold, thou hast become the light. Thou hast become the sound. Thou art thy master and thy God. What does that mean? You are your master and your God. Amazing. Amazing. And William James uh, picks it up. He says, This overcoming of all the usual barriers between the individual and the absolute is the great mystic achievement. In mystic states, we both become one with the absolute and we become aware of our oneness. Okay, that, that's a really interesting distinction because there, there really are two things going on. In the mystic state, we both become one with the absolute, right? So we become one with God. But we also become aware of our oneness. So it's like if you were questioning whether God exists and you have this experience, you're going to have your answer because you're going to be God. So it's not just that you are aware that God exists, but you're aware that you exist within God, that there's no difference between you and God. And that's crucial to understanding the mystic experience. And then William James says, the mystic range of consciousness is on the whole pantheistic and optimistic. And what he, what he means by that is it, it leaves you with the idea that, that that experience, conscious experience, and the world all around us, the cosmos, they're one and the same thing. And that thing is God. That's what pantheism is. All is God. That's what pantheism means. And so you have a mystic experience, and that's the sort of impression that you're left with in terms of your understanding of yourself and God. It's pantheistic. It's also optimistic. You know, it, it's definitely something that leaves you with a sense of a sense of optimism, a sense of hope for the future. You know, it removes that fear of death. It it um, it makes you feel like more things are possible, and it makes you think that there's sort of magic in the world. It makes the world more magical, and that is, that's optimistic. It means that it's full of potential and hope and possibility, and that we might actually be able to drive that somehow. We might actually be able to participate in that somehow. So it's empowering. It's definitely optimistic. And then he goes on. He says, as a matter of psychological fact, mystical states are usually authoritative over those who have them. They have been there and know. I don't think I have to add anything to that. Then he says, Our senses have assured us of certain states of fact, but mystical experiences are as direct perceptions of fact for those who have them as any sensation ever was for us. Okay, so that's interesting. He's saying, look, the experience of our senses in our ordinary, non-mystical daily lives, they give us some certainty about the facts of the world, the things that we can see and smell and touch and taste. We know they're real because we have experiences of them, right? He's just making the point. He says, but look, mystical experiences seem exactly the same for people who have them. Mystical experiences are direct perceptions. Just like, you, you know, you have a direct perception of, you know... Your spouse lying in bed next to you, and the and the, you know, the clock on the table, and <clears throat> all that. Mystical experiences are just like that for people who have them. Then he says, religious mysticism is only one half of mysticism. The other half has no accumulated traditions except those which the textbooks on insanity supply. 
I'll stop there just because that's interesting. He says mysticism has this religious component, but it also seems to have connections to insanity. Now, remember, this book was published in 1902, so the language on, on you know, mental health and stuff is going to be different. But, he, but he's talking about there being a connection to insanity. And here we go. He says, he says, open any one of these and you will find abundant cases in which mystical ideas are cited as characteristic symptoms of enfeebled or deluded states of mind. In delusional insanity, paranoia, we may have a diabolical mysticism. The same sense of ineffable importance in the smallest events. The same texts and words coming with new meaning. And the same voices and visions. It is Okay, now before I read this last sentence, I just want to say, what do you think about that? You know, you have a mystic experience like the ones I'm talking about. And you're left with, with this exaggerated feeling of meaning. Like, with the, the world is imbued with meaning. It's just bursting with meaning. And it's sort of undifferentiated meaning, like everything means everything. It's overwhelming. It's part of this mystic experience. But when you start giving meaning or attributing meaning to all sorts of things, commonplace things that don't have any meaning like we traditionally uh, would, would speak about, like meaning that has implication for our behavior, just things seem meaningful, you know? And if they aren't meaningful necessarily in, in you know, kind of the context, but they seem meaningful, that's something like schizophrenia. You know, that's people think everything means something, you know, people get paranoid. They think everybody's out to get them and everything seems to support, you know, to support that idea that it's a it's characteristic of being crazy, for lack of a better word. That's what he's saying. He even says it's not just about the meaning. It's the voices and visions that you're hearing. People who have mystic experiences talk about that. They have hallucinations. People that are crazy have hallucinations. So. It would be easy, and in, fa- in fact, it might even be likely for somebody today to say, okay, well, that's that's an explanation for religion, and it's just crazy people. Uh, what comes to my mind is like Floki from the show Vikings. Um, you know, if he was living in a modern society, he would be a crazy man. But in, in that society, he had a place, and his place was the shaman. And, uh, you know, there is a connection between People like that, people that have borderline personality disorders, multiple personalities, people that have schizophrenia, there are all sorts of characteristics there that overlap with the mystic stuff that we're talking about. And in in the mystic group, you've got people who come back saying, you know, that they have cured their PTSD or that they no longer have a fear of death or, you know, that they have a new zest for life. And that's very different from the schizophrenic who wakes up thinking, you know, that that you know, the world is going to be destroyed tomorrow or something. They're, they're different types of experiences. And it would be easy for someone just to write it off and say, well, you know, religion just comes about because, because people's mental wiring is going wrong and they're having these same sort of symptoms that you see in crazy people. So that's, that's, that's the biological reason for religion. It's not mystical at all. It's just, you know, something, something went wrong with the chemistry in your brain and, and so you're having the same symptoms a schizophrenic has. But William James doesn't do that, and it may be because it was written in 1902 and it wasn't written today. And this is, this is what he says. It is evident from the point of view of their psychological mechanisms, the classic mysticism and these lower mysticisms, by lower mysticisms he means insanity, spring from the same mental level. Okay, so William James saying, look, it's not that religion can be written off as just sort of like lightweight craziness. It's not like that. 
what he's saying is that there is mechanisms of action in your brain and in your body that allow for those sorts of experiences. And and um, when people have something like schizophrenia, it's working on that same um, infrastructure. So it's not that religion is an example of insanity. It's that insanity is sort of a byproduct of the religious capability. The fact that we have the the capability of having a mystic experience. It's built into our biology, let's say. That 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 is what's um, that's what's going wrong, or that that's that's the origin of the uh, of the schizophrenia and, and all of this stuff that you see as, you know, like a mental disease. It's simply playing on the wiring that's already there for for a mystic experience. Like the the wiring in the brain is not there so that we can become crazy. It's there so that we can tap into these altered states of consciousness that are possible. And it reminds me of a story um, I can try to tell you briefly. Uh, there's a book I bring up from time to time, a fiction book that I like a lot, called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And in the story, Jonathan Strange, is um, uh, he's a magician in um, like Napoleonic-era England. And there's a history in England, in, according to this book, of people that could do magic, but they're all gone, and they've been gone for a long time, and nobody can do magic anymore until Jonathan Strange comes around. And he's this first guy in you know, hundreds and hundreds of years who can do it. And so he, um, uh, there's a whole, the whole story wraps around that. But there's a spot in the story where Jonathan Strange is, is trying to do really difficult magic. And he's struggling and struggling. He's, he's not able to do it. There's no knowledge in any of the books that will help him. And try as he might, he's not getting anywhere. And what he does in the story to try to break through that barrier is he, he's, he slowly and intentionally causes himself to go crazy. And little by little by little, the, the truth becomes available to him, and he finds his path to um, this deeper magic. And I, I don't know, Susanna Clark who wrote that book, I don't know if she's had a mystic experience or if this is just a, an intuition that came to her, but I absolutely love that, the way it plays out in fiction in that story. Um, and it just it just popped in my head here. So, so there you have it. Uh, I'll read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norwood. It's great. All right. Almost done here, guys. So uh, William uh, James, he says, As a rule, mystical states merely add a supersensuous meaning to the ordinary outward data of consciousness. They are excitements by which facts already objectively before us make a new connection with our active life. They do not contradict these facts or deny anything that our sense, senses have immediately seized. And that's that's important because it's something Kyle said once. He said when you're... When you're in a uh, when you're in a mystic experience or in a visionary uh, experience of some kind, very often you don't feel like you're you don't feel like you're inebriated. You know, you feel pretty sharp um, in your mind. You feel like you're experiencing things as they're happening. Nothing. It doesn't feel like delayed or foggy or illusionary. It doesn't feel like that at all. Mentally, you feel perfectly f- in in. You have your wits about you, you know, perfectly fine. And I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying that that the mystic experience adds something to, it kind of overlays something to our experience of ordinary reality. It kind of overlays something, it injects something into it, right? But it doesn't take anything away, and it doesn't change anything, you know, that, that you know is real. He says, they do not contradict these facts or deny anything that our senses have immediately seized. Um... 
And there is something like that, you know, and I think it's connected to the idea of still feeling like you have a healthy, ordinary um, consciousness during it. You don't feel like you do if, you, if you're drunk, for instance. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that's interesting. And then he says, it must always remain an open question whether mystical states may not possibly be such superior points of view, windows through which the mind looks out upon a more extensive and inclusive world. He says, the supernaturalism and optimism to which they would persuade us may be, after all, the truest of insights into the meaning of this life. God, it's beautiful. So he's asking the question at the end of the book, and he says it must always remain an open question whether mystical states are not showing you a superior point of view. It might not be showing you a more extensive worldview than what you see during your waking, healthy hours. That the mystic experience might be showing you more of reality. And then he says, he says the supernaturalism and optimism to which they would persuade us may be, after all, the truest of insights into the meaning of life. So not only is he not writing this off, he's saying, I can't, I can't answer this for sure, and I can't write it off, because, because the mystic experience may in fact be the truest insight into the meaning of this life. <sighs> I mean, I don't know what, I, what else to add to that. That seems, sounds like a mic-dropping kind of a moment. But what I'll do is I'll read you the conclusion that I wrote. All right, here we go. What I found most compelling about the varieties of religious experience, apart from the genuinely curious and fair exploration of mystic experience, which is all but written off today as unscientific, is the consistency of the mystic experience, illustrated from antiquity, from, from Plotinus and Paul, through the Middle Ages, so we, we heard it from Jacob Bohm and Galshan Ras, and into the modern, rational, scientific period. So we saw examples from Walt Whitman, from um, Emerson, from Mother Teresa, which I, I didn't read you the Mother Teresa quote, but there's one in there, from Buck and William James himself. In each retelling, wherever they occur in space and time, and regardless of cultural context, a consistent theme ties them all together. The stories support and confirm one another and validate the mystic phenomenon as real, as reproducible, and as definable. It's not magic. It's not, it's not fake. It's not imaginary. And this is good news for the seeker, for the yearner after wisdom, for the curious and for the open-minded. There is an experience that is possible to have which reliably brings illumination, awe, and immortality to those who can achieve it. It removes the fear of death, unburdens the soul, and even reveals the hidden reality of God. This experience is possible for you. And maybe now, after hearing these accounts of people's actual mystic experiences, we can better understand the accounts of these of these uh, today, uh, these, these patients rather today, who receive psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and come away with the same enduring feeling. They all report the mystic experience to be one of the most, if not the most, significant of their entire lives. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored. 
but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.